This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to actually speak to Austin Fract from the New York Times about whether Alcoholics Anonymous even works. We have studies on that now. Plus, of course, we're going to get to a bunch of MMA topics. I'm going to have a response to yesterday's show. I'm going to tell you why media doesn't really have much of a choice to watch UFC 249 and why. Plus, we dig into the mailbag. Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 3 p.m. right here on Sirius XM Fi Nation Channel 156. And don't forget the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. So I want to follow up on some of the things that we've been discussing a bit, which is the response to yesterday's show. If you missed it, go check it out on the podcast. You can check it out on demand. The basic idea is as follows. I, my People think that I'm like, I don't want to talk about it anymore, which I, can, which I sort of said. I mean, I, I, let me walk it back a little bit. Here was the basic problem that I discovered yesterday. I felt like in terms of trying to get safety standards taken seriously for uh, UFC 249, I felt that um, I had to say something. And, you know, if you listen to the Association of Ringside Physicians and everybody else, they just don't think anything should go forward at all. Which isn't to say that this event will naturally result in disaster, it's just, you know, this whole idea that we have to get back to business for some pioneering spirit of American solutionism, it's not really true, right? You go back to the first segment, the Wall Street Journal is basically saying, these guys owe inventory, man. That's what this is about. So this is what I always say in MMA. The debate in MMA is never actually about the debate. It's always about something else because nobody can be honest about what it's about. I don't know why the UFC can't come out and say, look, we got a business to run and we can't, uh, we can't stay, or in business is the word, but... We're going to have real trouble if we can't meet inventory. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a pledge to fighters to keep them as safe as possible. We're going to, you know, here's the other part. It wasn't like, and maybe they did behind the scenes, but if the message had been, look, we got a job to run. And if we can make a a way to, to, if we can find a way to do it, we will. We're going to up everybody's pay, blah, 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 blah. You know, but I didn't ever hear, I never heard any of that. I, I just heard, you know, shut up. We'll do it. We'll figure it out. We're smarter than you. End of story. And that just never sat right with me. So what I said yesterday, let me, I'll dial it back just a little bit. The problem that I ran into was in trying to make the case for these various considerations, I felt like I was A, only preaching to the converted, and B, not getting other people um, to agree with me, and worse, enraging them. And then on top of it, and this was really the key insight, it had crossed my desk, so to speak, that there were a series of fighters who thought I was arguing that not only should the show be canceled, but that the show should be canceled. And if that's their only way to get money, well, then, you know, tough, which has never, ever, ever, ever been my position. Not once. And you can say, which I said when someone told me this, I said, but that can't be. I mean, literally pinned to the top of my Twitter account is an interview we did on this show with Michelle Evermore of the National Employment Law Project, where she talked about how to get gig economy, gig workers in this economy, excuse me, independent contractors and fighters money. It was the first time that uh, anyone, in my knowledge, in the sport had done anything like that. And I put that out for a very specific reason. Because it's, yes, if you're going to argue that the shows should not take place right now, then you have to find a way to put money in the hands of fighters. The two go hand in hand. It is not one than the other. 
I don't know who is lying to fighters to tell them that when the media calls for uh, no shows to take place, that we're calling for them to not get paid. It's a lie. It's not real. But here's the problem. If in the advocacy of my, my positions, I end up in a space where that's what they hear, I'm not doing something right. I'm not doing something right. I clearly am not doing something right. So the whole point I'm trying to get across here is, it's not that I don't think the issues are important, but the two major considerations that I had were, one, if the fighters are getting the wrong impression, that's bad, and I need to figure out a different way. And two, I'm not sure how to do that yet when I just feel like the biggest obstacle I'm up against is that a lot of people who are skeptics on this, are not going to change their opinion based on anything I say. The more I say it, the more I'm going to piss them off. And it's going to take time, and probably worse, catastrophe, for them to change their opinion. I've made the point. How many different ways can I make it at this, at this juncture? Right? That's the point. So I'm not giving up on it entirely. And if I said that yesterday, it probably was a function of frustration. I am going to put it a bit on the back burner. We're going to go over it a little bit today, but not in a kind of heavy-handed way that I might have done it even two, three, four, five days ago. But that's the issue. The issue is, look, man, I've said it before about this sport, and I will say it again. Everybody in this sport, not everybody, too many people in this sport are takers. They're just takers. What can MMA do for me? And I have been a taker. All of us are takers to an extent, right? Um, if you're a fan, less so, because you probably have paid money and, and you've gotten entertainment back, but that's just part of the transaction. But if you're a fighter, you've taken from it. If you're a media member, you've taken from it. If you're a promoter, you've taken from it. Doesn't mean you didn't have a right to take some from it, but you, know, you also have to give back. And fighters give back in their own way, uh, and media needs to give back in their own way. And getting the impression out there that what I'm calling for is for them to just lose money and then be destitute. Man, that is so that is so not what I am arguing, and it's not even close. My whole argument has been that the organizations should provide a stipend for those who had fighters scheduled that are now not taking place. And if that's not possible, then some kind of coordination with uh, corporate guidance on getting these uh, unemployment benefits, which are historic, is another option. And then just waiting until a series of possibilities arrive um, with safety protocol more fully developed. That's it. That's it. That's what I've argued. So i got to figure out a better way to do that. But until I do that, I need to hit the brakes on it a little little bit. I do. Because if, if no one is getting your message and it's just your message, it's your fault. Right, it, it more or less it means you were not very convincing, or outright misleading, and that was the problem. It's, I can live with not being convincing. What I really can't live with is being misleading, and especially to a vulnerable group in fighters. All right, we got a ton more mailbag coming your way. Rest of the show, Luke Thomas show. Stick around. This is Dave LaGreca. During these unprecedented times, we are doing our best to produce the content you expect while keeping our production staff out of harm's way. While you may not be able to call us, that doesn't mean you can't interact with us. 
Just hit us up on Twitter using hashtag AskBustedOpen. We look forward to talking about pro wrestling, talking about WrestleMania 36, and all of us getting back to the sport we love. Stay safe, be healthy. In the meantime, we want to once again thank you for subscribing to SiriusXM and listening to Fight Nation. All right, we're back. Luke Thomas Show. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com is the mailbag, but let's get to our guest if we can. He is a, well, he's a man of many hats, but certainly a health economist with Boston University and is part of, uh, wrote this article in conjunction with another gentleman. This was the title of it. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous versus Other Approaches. The evidence is now in. I found this to be fascinating, and he joins us now on the hotline. It's Austin Fract. Hi, Austin. How are you? I'm good, considering. How are you? Yeah, how are you, uh, how are you managing in your neck of the woods with all of this uh, craziness? Well, I'm super fortunate to be able to work from home since all my work's like sort of computer based uh, and, you know, with with uh, Zoom and Skype and all that. So I'm managing pretty well. Actually, I mean, apart from everything that's going on inside my house is great. And I'm really enjoying it. All the what's going on outside the house is, is obviously not great. But so uh, so actually, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of happy <laughs> inside the house. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I usually work from home, so this has not been a terrible adjustment, but obviously um, a lot going on in the world. OK, well, this article came across my. Uh, radar just before the pandemic uh, madness set in, but I did not want to lose track of it. So here's the basic idea as I understand it. There has been some evidence uh, our, our folks have tried to cobble together for years, up until 2006, whether or not Alcoholics Anonymous worked and did it work better than other approaches. But as you write in this, it was not exactly clear. But now, in 2020, we have more information. Is that a fair assessment of the challenges in trying to gather information about this? Yeah, that's definitely fair. If you go back about 14, 15 years, um, there just wasn't a lot of high quality work on this. And we can get into what that means. And then the intervening uh, uh, years, uh, a lot of great studies have come out. So this new systematic review that, that I wrote about with my colleague, Aaron Carroll, um, uh, covers those new studies. And that really uh, clarifies what we can say about Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, so first things first, you had noted that there is something called the Cochrane Collaboration. It's mentioned a couple of times in this article. For the audience's sake, what, what is the Cochrane Collaboration and why is it significant to our discussion? Cochrane Collaboration is, uh, is an effort, uh, I don't know when they started, but it's, it's, it's many years old, uh, to do what's called systematic reviews. That's a technical term for those of us in, in academia. It means they, they have a systematic approach to gathering all the evidence about a topic and they form a, a group of people to assess that evidence and then write sort of a, a definitive review about, okay, here's what we know about how this, this, uh, this therapy affects this population. And they do it for many, many things. And a lot of it is, is available uh, to the public, by the way. Um, and, and what they do, this is very nice. If you, if you pull up, if you just Google a topic and Cochrane Collaboration, you'll, you'll find their website and you'll get into it. But their, their first page, will have a summary and they'll even have a plain language summary for uh, for you know um, for for general audience, so you can actually go in even if you're not an expert on a particular topic and read uh, what the experts know about it. All right. So as it relates to this particular article, here's what the what your article says: uh, that last month, around the 11th or so, they found that Alcoholics Anonymous leads to increased rates and lengths of abstinence compared with other common treatments and uh, on other measures like drinks per day it performs about as well as other approaches by individual therapists or doctors. So the question is, what has changed from 14 years ago to today? You mentioned that there's better information. Tell me about that better information. And then categorically, how do we know that it's better? Yeah, so if you go back 15 years or so, 
there weren't a lot of uh, what we call like super high quality studies. This is actually, Alcoholics Anonymous is actually a tricky thing to study. And the reason is that people self-select into it. So uh, if you go look at, uh, at who's in Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they're not compelled to be there. Um, they choose, you know, to go, when to go and so forth. And so if you study like, well, what does the effect of this program have on these people? Um, it's not clear w- whether what you're observing is due to the program or due to the people and particularly the, the timing of when they go in. And so there were not a lot of uh, high quality studies in part because of that challenge. And in the intervening years, there have been some better studies, including randomized trials um, that, that tell us that actually Alcoholics Anonymous as a, as a program um, does have a, 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 a benefit uh, beyond what, uh, what other common treatments uh, provide. Uh, does the study get into any of the, uh, I don't know if this is the proper term, any of the externalities that come with also with Alcoholics Anonymous, which is to say I had a friend try it once and he did get sober, but it required a certain processes of uh, belief in this sort of system that they set up that kind of weirded him out for a little while. I mean, I realize this is terribly yeah. plain language, but um, yeah. Yeah, it, got him, it got him off the alcohol, but it changed him a little bit too. And I'm not sure entirely for the better. Do the studies get into that at all? No, I don't. I don't think they do. But but what is true of these studies? Uh, I mean, true of Alcoholics Anonymous and true of almost any treatment for anything, is that it's actually it's not for everybody. So even if on average it has a, a benefit, uh, a benefit, it doesn't mean that there aren't some people for whom there is no benefit. There aren't some people for whom there are like other effects of the kind you were talking about that are um, they may not want. You know, uh, for other treatments we call them side effects, um, and so. Uh, I think it's important uh, when we when we hear about results like this, it's important not to say, oh, that means everybody should do AA and we should get rid of everything else. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, like, uh, we finally know that AA is helpful and on average a little more helpful than other things. But that doesn't mean that's true for literally everybody. And it is good to have a variety of approaches uh, for any for any uh, issue. So it says here in the article, studies generally show that other treatments might result in about 15 to 25% of people who remain abstinent with AA. It's somewhere between 22 to 37 because specific findings vary by study. Um, right. Still, that, uh, some people might read that and say, yeah, that means the majority of people don't find success with it. So yeah. is there any, any comment you would have about people's skepticism seeing these numbers as potentially low? Yeah, I mean, it means the majority of people aren't finding necessarily a, a benefit from uh, from anything, um, which which just speaks to how difficult it is uh, to treat an addiction in general. Um, and also, by the way, uh, these actually aren't low. When, when, what people don't realize, and actually, I have a I have a, a different uh, a column on this going back a number of years. Um, but what people don't realize is that many many treatments, you know, for for any health health problem. Uh, have an effect, have effectivenesses that are in this range or sometimes lower, sometimes like actually a pretty high rate of benefit. is like if, if a treatment helps one out of 10 people, that's actually high, considered high in the medical community. And most people don't know that at all. Hmm. Wow. So then I guess 37% would be, if you could find one that way, sort of relatively extraordinary. Do they, does, yeah, the, do, do, very does, high. does this Cochrane collaboration or any other entity here, do they ever get into the nuts and bolts of what AA is doing about why it works? It's one thing to measure the effectiveness. It's another question to say, why is that happening? 
Um, my guess is the answer is is yes that there's been work on it, but uh, I not being like uh, an expert in in all things in this area, I don't know. I don't I don't really know. Have a like a solid answer for that one. Fair enough. Now another part that you had indicated was now we have based on this um, this more recent effort by Cochrane Collaboration, twenty seven studies involving ten thousand five hundred and sixty five participants. I'm guessing that there's not some threshold of a number where you can look at and say, okay, that's enough people for us to have a clear sense of things. But it does seem to stand eleven thousand gives you that. When you're looking at these kinds of studies or groups of studies. What numbers do you have in mind for the number of participants or other benchmarks that gives you an indication that the results uh, are likely the, true? Yeah, it's a tricky question because you, you're right. You can't go on the, the number of participants because you could have a study that has a lot of participants, but, um, but the participants selected for that study are not representative of, of you or of the general population. So, you know, you could imagine even selecting you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But uh, like here, here's a common thing. Um, if, you, if you've done a study, uh, a really big study, many tens of thousands of people, um, but they're all male or they're all between the ages of like 18 and 25, and you are a woman who's 55, could you say necessarily that study applied to you? No, you couldn't. And so the number of people in a study does not alone tell you that it's a high quality study. Um, having said that, um, you know, when I see uh, a study and it's, and the number of people involved in it are, you know, in the low double digits or smaller. So it's a 12-person study. It's a 27-person study. It's a three-person study. I'm thinking, yeah, how, how good could that be? I mean, you know, it's easy to get to kind of go off the rails when you're only looking at a, a very small number of people. As a health economist, I wonder if you could weigh in on this consideration, which is that Alcoholics Anonymous is essentially, I mean, it's not entirely true, but it's mostly a free service, especially compared to, yep. let's say, expensive rehabs, if it has this kind of effectiveness rate for that amount of cost, as somebody who understands uh, healthcare and healthcare costs to at least some degree, that seems like a fairly important public health component uh, that is somewhat, uh, that's, that's unusual to be that effective and that cheap, right? Definitely. It, it's, um, we almost never see something like this in healthcare that that is uh, has is this effective and this cheap. I mean, the only thing we we can do that's the kind of similar is you know regular exercise, which you can do for free. Yes, you can pay for a gym, but you could just go out for a walk um, or eating healthy. Yes, that costs something, but often you can eat healthy for the same price as eating unhealthy. So um, this is very effective for the cost, which is essentially free, um, which, which means, you know, uh, my advice, and this is not uh, clinical advice, but just as a sort of what I would advise a friend or myself, if, if I, if I needed uh, this kind of treatment is to give it a try. Cause you sort of have nothing to lose in terms of cost. Um, and if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't suit you, you know, okay, there, there are other things out there for you and they're going to cost something, but at least this one's free. Uh, now, you have a blog, if I'm not mistaken, called The Incidental Economist. Um, yeah. I've not had a chance to look through it in great detail. I'll just tell you this. As someone who works in sports predominantly, uh, Austin, I'm obviously paying attention to how the coronavirus will impact our industry. Absent this particular consideration, what is something right now, given your expertise, that you're paying attention to as the nation grapples with this pandemic? Um, I've been paying attention to... Uh, what we're going to, I've been thinking, how do I put this? I've been thinking about what are things going to look like when we get further down 
the, the, the down in, further into time on this thing. So I know many of us are focused quite day to day. You know, what's the uh, the case count? What's the death count? What does it look like in my city, my town? All super important, and I look at that too. But I'm sort of wondering what do, what do, what is it going to look like for us as we start to come out of this in some months? Uh, could be a year, you know, from now or even two years from now. Um, in terms of what what are the lasting effects? Um, and, you know, what are the, the habits that we've developed that we'll keep? Um, and uh, I, f- I find thinking about that pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Well, if you want to read more, you can do so at The Incidental Economist. It is Austin Fract, of course, as I indicated, wear many hats, but a health economist with Boston University. Uh, great work on this. Great summation. And uh, really appreciate talking to you today, Austin. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is your boy, Ock, from SiriusXM Fight Nation. Live sports all across the nation is on hold as we face this time of uncertainty in the world. We have concerns about family, friends, neighbors. So we're taking this time out to focus on the things that are important, like safety. One thing you can count on for sure is we're going to get through it together. Boxing and combat sports will return. And when it does, we'll be right here, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation. In the meantime, you can join us for live sports talk with Mad Dog Sports Radio, Channel 82, and SiriusXM NFL Radio, Channel 88. You know what's one thing we should talk about, Cobb? And we may want to make an audiogram out of this very quickly. I hear this all the time being like, if you're so against UFC 249, well then just don't watch it. And it's like, well, let's talk about that for a second, shall we? Number one, I do actually have some latitude. In other words, if there was never any UFC 249, what would I cover? I don't know, I'd figure something out. But, you know, this idea that... um, I don't have latitude to, even if their events are taking place, like if there's a UFC Brasilia card, the level of detail and coverage I'll go to into that versus not is pretty significant, right? I mean, um, or I should say versus, uh, let, me, let me state that over one more time. If there was a UFC Brasilia card versus, let's say, a UFC 249 and there was no other different, like there was no pandemic, the level of attention I would give a Brasilia card and the, the, the certain segments we would do on the show would be a lot less than if it was something for UFC 249. But, um, so I do. We, it is true that we do have some latitude. But let me tell you what I can't do. When we have normally 15 hours of radio a week, or 10 in this format, I can't show up on Monday <laughs> and tell my boss, hey, I didn't watch UFC 249 because I thought it was morally unethical. What she'll say, or it, it, which isn't even necessarily my viewpoint at this, this juncture, I think it's just medically risky, but she would say, uh, it's fine if you think it's medically risky, watch it and then state that during the course of your coverage, but the event happened, you have to pay attention to it. This idea that like for major events in the sport or just major pieces of news, that you can just wholesale ignore it because you have some kind of a, uh, a moral issue. I'm not saying that that could never happen, but we're not even close to that yet. I mean, Jerry Sandusky would have to be leading a peewee football team for someone on staff here to say, maybe we don't cover that game. That's how bad it would have to be. Certainly the UFC is taking some safety measures in concordance with UFC 249. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with all of this as I speak to you today. The second part is all of this. It's like, dude... Understand what the job is of the media. The job is not we only cover the things that we cheerlead. The job is you have to pay attention to what is relevant to the extent that you can. 
You have to pay attention to what is important and uh, eventful to the extent that you can. And again, at the margins with what you do and don't do, there is some room to play with. But you don't just say, I'm going to cover things I like. I'm not going to cover things I don't like. Do you know how weird coverage would look in MMA if media only covered things that they like? You think they like one-tenth of the fighters that they talk to? Do you think that they, they love traveling to shows? Oh, I would love to have that job. Everyone says it until they have it, and then they realize it's a little bit different. But the point being is you don't dictate your coverage by what you like and you hate. You dictate uh, in terms of uh, – uh, uh, let me say that one more time. You don't dictate your coverage by what you like and you hate in terms of do you pay attention to it all in and give it the 100% seal of approval or do you completely ignore and pretend it's not happening? You don't, you don't necessarily do that. Okay? The way it works is you, you decide how you feel about something. If it is truly, absolutely on some level of moral heinousness, no. You don't pay attention to it. I don't think we've reached moral heinousness with this, with this particular event. But if you have issues about it, then you state it. And if your job is to watch it, you watch it. Now, do I have to provide coverage on fight night? No. I may, I may not. We'll have to see. But when Monday comes around, Showtime is expecting analysis. When Monday comes around, SiriusXM is expecting analysis, and they should. They want to know what people who cover MMA have to say about an MMA event. And that might be some fight breakdowns. It might also be, this is a really weird event. I mean, there's, people are not going to be next to each other in normal ways. We don't even know what the fight arena is going to look like. There's not going to be any post-fight interviews, I don't think. It's going to be strange. It's going to be very, very strange. Having a look at that is important. And if you have issues with how any event is run, you are allowed to say something about it. You can ignore smaller stuff at a smaller scale to some degree, right? I can't pay attention to every regional show that happens out there. And I don't pay attention to every show in the UFC does that happens out there. But this one, when the world is paying attention to just say to your bosses on Monday, I'm not going to watch... It's not a luxury you have, and nor would that even make any sense. The, whole, the point is not to boycott. The point is to cover. It just means you cover it in a way where you're not a strict and you know, unabashed cheerleader. People, Cobb, here's what they're doing. They're confusing consumer choices about what is and isn't things they want to spend their money on, which is correct, versus media, essentially job description, media responsibility. They're not the same. There is some overlap, but they're not the same. And getting that confused, I know everyone's going to be like, oh, how can you cover this event on uh, UFC 249 when you were against it? Because that's part of the job. The job isn't me walking into my boss's office like Michigan J. Frog and deciding, uh, you know, chewing like uh, Bill Burr talking about Steve Jobs eating pretentious fruit Walking in and be like, okay, here's what I'm going to cover. I'm going to cover X because I feel like it. Going to cover Y because I don't. Good talk. I'll see you later. Figure it out. It's not how it goes. It's not how it goes. If as a consumer, you really don't mind any of the choices the UFC is making or you are comforted by their safety protocol or whatever your reason is, then certainly that's a choice that you are allowed to make. If you're on the other hand about the consumer side of things where you're not comfortable with it, you don't have to do it. Totally fine. That's a consumer choice that you're allowed to make. And I saw people make it with WWE as it related to the Saudi Arabia incident. Did people not talk about in the wrestling world the Saudi Arabia card or any cards that they've done? No, they talked about stuff that they found heinous about it and they kind of watched. 
and the coverage differed place to place. Some people had less of an issue with it. Some people had more of an issue with it. But you know, you can't just decide, I'm going to ignore everything. Some, th- some things you can't ignore, but the bigger stuff you can't. You can't. You can't do it. And this is a... Cobb, how would you classify... This is a moment in time uh, for the sport that is, for everybody, for the world, historic. Historic. You can skip some stuff. You can't skip all of it. They might even say you can watch the main event and you can skip everything else. But there are going to be, there's going to be some portion of this you have to pay attention to because the job isn't I pay attention to what I like and agree with. The job is I pay attention to what's newsworthy. Someone want to tell me it's not newsworthy? For better or for worse? It's newsworthy. Have you, have you seen all these people be like, all these media folks, if you don't like it, you can just suck it. Yeah, it's either that or some other version of like, yeah, but you know they're going to watch it and talk about it and cover it. It's like, yeah, that's the job, idiots. That's the job. Like, that's the job, that's yeah. Literally what we signed up for. Yeah, if we were just fans, yeah, we could choose to just not watch it if we didn't want to. But you have to be prepared and you're going to watch the fight because you have to because it's part of your job description. So, yeah, we have to watch it, whether we, whether we agree with them doing it or not. So, some part of it. Some part of it. The looseness of it confuses people. I mean, here's, how, here's the best way to explain it. It's like, I don't put what we do even on 1% of 1% of 1% of the level of importance of what a, a police officer does. But they don't get to choose, oh, we're only going to police the nice neighborhoods. <laughs> you got to talk about all the neighborhoods. And you got to get in there and be a part of all the neighborhoods. And again, how you do that to varying degrees I leave that up to the very capable hands of our police and uh, uh, the police departments and the sheriff's office around the country. Law enforcement and the folks involved there will figure that out one way or the other. But you don't get to just choose, oh, well, I'm going to police this street but not the next one over. If it's your jurisdiction, it's your jurisdiction. I can choose, for example, to ignore I mean, the NFL draft is going to be virtual. I can choose to ignore that. Uh, but I can't. I can't have complete autonomy over everything that we do inside MMA. I have a lot of say. That's true. But I don't have 100% say. And we should get we should get Marissa on for like a five-minute segment and be like, hey, can we skip 249 just to hear her be like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> we have a moral problem with it, and we don't think we yeah. should cover it. Yeah, we, think it it's, we, we think, it's, we think they're, the medical decisions they're making are a little bit risky. And she'll be like, okay, well then say that on Monday, dot, 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 after you watch, idiot. That is exactly what she'll say. That's exactly what she'll say. So we're going to put this, I want to put this in the podcast because I think this is important for folks to hear. It, 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 yes, you might say if you've got enough latitude, do you have enough latitude to skip 249? You could probably skip parts of it. I might even agree with that. D- d- does Marissa need us to break down the fight pass portion of the card? Probably not. Probably not. Maybe some parts of the ESPN card and then obviously some parts of the main card. So it's not even like you have to watch it in totality. That part is not true. Um, but you gotta watch, you got to watch some of it. Yeah, you just do. It's not a consumer choice. It's a job. And the job means you get to say if your job has editorial implications, what you feel about it, but it also has certain responsibilities thereafter. And if that's not a thing that you can understand, if that sounds contradictory to you, feel free to not listen to the show. Go find somebody who has been an advocate for this show since day one. And you can, and by the way, that's also a consumer choice that you can make. 
I don't want you to do that, but you are, as a consumer, allowed to go and make choices about what things you want to consume and what things you don't. Um, but, you know, there's probably a lot of media folk that, uh, you know, who work in various industries, who have to cover the state house, who have to cover the local fire department, who have to cover local crime beat, who have to cover blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of things they don't want to do. You just end up doing it. Or at least, at least, at least certain parts of it. Because the job isn't, I get to pick and choose everything. The job is, I get to pick and choose some things, but not the most important things. Fairly important in a moment in time in the industry. Sirius XM's got a new podcast series getting you ready for the upcoming NFL Draft. With the first pick. Hosted by NFL Radio's Bruce Murray. Each episode focuses on a specific position and features in-depth analysis and interviews with top prospects. Right now, you can check out our quarterback episode, which showcases conversations with Joe Burrow, Tua Takabaloa, Justin Herbert, and more. New episodes drop every Monday leading up to the NFL Draft. Just download the Sirius XM app, search NFL Draft previews, and enjoy. All right, we do it every Wednesday, ladies and gents. It is time now for the TLTS Midweek Mailback. All right, with that in mind, let's bring in uh, the world's most technically savvy producer. Man knows tech in a way that none of us can ever even dream of. It's the king king of tech, K-O-T. Hi, king of tech. I forgot more about tech than you could ever learn, Luke. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's get to it now, if we can, sir. Let's go. Uh, let's go. Uh, give me, give me something original. Give me something different from the mailbag, good sir. Wait a minute, Mr. Postman. All right, this one comes from Gibber Saint, who says, uh, "Hey, Luke. So I see how this Gaethje Ferguson thing is going. Call me crazy, but I think most of us see Gaethje almost finishing Ferguson in the first, but Ferguson somehow surviving like he usually does, and we'll start picking apart Gaethje by the middle of the second round. Possibly finishes Gaethje in the third or fourth." by elbows or submission but this is a last second replacement for tony therefore i'm going to call the upset i think gagey will clip tony uh will clip tony in the, for an upset at somewhere within the first round for some reason i believe that last second opponents most likely equals major upsets are there any other recent examples of last second opponents in the last five years that backs up my claim that resulted in a major upset especially of a top 10 opponent all right, let's think about this for a second. He's talking about last-minute upsets, and what exactly is his reason for thinking there'd be an upset rather than just the categorization? He believes, uh, my logic is that a higher-ranked opponent usually needs more time to study the lower-ranked opponent to focus on exposing, exposing flaws through game plans, while a lower-ranked lower opponent can come in and just execute on their target, thinking less strategically and more basic simplifying the, for the fight themselves. Or maybe I'm overanalyzing this entirely. Is what he says. I don't. Th I think there could be something to that. I think part of it is um, certainly Tony's more of a known quantity, right? Dude's had more fights that have gone longer at the highest level, so that's part of it. I think the other part is that Justin, Justin's dude. We don't talk about this because Justin's like, oh, he's known as a wrestler, dude. Justin is like the exact opposite of Nurmagomedov. Like, Nurmagomedov's going to get in your face. He'll strike with you a little bit, but you know where he's trying to take the fight. Justin has zero takedown attempts in his UFC career. Zero. He's never even tried. That's a different fight, man. That's a different fight. And also, the pressure's on Tony to just, you know, stay where he is. If Justin loses this, he can still find his way back, presumably. Um, and so, another example. What would you say, Cobb? Uh, Connor versus Diaz. 
Yeah, I think that's the biggest one we've seen in a while. Connor versus Diaz, right? Um, so you can see that. I mean, for the reasons about ranking, I'm less convinced. But for the other factors in play and in individual circumstances, yeah. I mean, I think that Connor was way too accommodating with the weight uh, at first. I think Connor didn't take it seriously. Uh, and that played a role in here. I think Tony is certainly all offense all the time, so he's a little bit different in that regard. But he has to face a totally different opponent with a different set of stakes because of it for that opponent. And, you know, doing it on short notice and everything else. If anyone has the ability to adapt, it's probably Tony because he has so many ways to win. But no one's really talking about the fact that this is a dramatically, dramatically different opponent. Total opposites, even though Gaethje can quote-unquote wrestle uh, night and day. I mean, honestly, here's a question. Who would be the opposite of Nurmagomedov as a high-ranking top five opponent in that division, if not Justin? Well, you could say Dustin Poirier, sort of. But, I mean, Dustin Poirier will even go for takedowns on occasion. Dude, I'm not, I can't make this up anymore or, or, or emphasize it. Justin Gaethje has zero takedown attempts. <laughs> He's never even tried. Nothing. Not gotten tired and then desperation shot. Nothing. It's not in him. He's stuffed a lot of shots, and he can wrestle in that way. He is the exact opposite. It's a tough fight, man. It's a tough fight. Uh, all right. What's next? I got mail. Yay! Uh, this comes from Allie, who says, Hey, Luke. Uh, what do you predict will be Dana's plan for catching up on the fight schedule once some worldwide norm- normality is restored? Does Fight Week in July become a Monday through Sunday event with the, with live events every night? Could the current lockdown situations worldwide play into the UFC's hands in terms of boosting Fight Pass by having its exclusive events to catch up? I'm sorry, by having exclusive events to catch up on on schedule. I mean, it's impossible to say. If you owe 42. It depends how many obstacles are in their way and how often they can do this and who's available and blah, 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 blah. Like, there, you know, on the one hand, I tend to think that there's no way that this whole thing continues as normal. Maybe, maybe they get off 249. Maybe they get off a bunch of them. But something, to me, something just doesn't add up about it. And so the question is, with how much time they have and with how much inventory they owe, that will define everything here. That, that, that's really my only answer. And the amount of permutations that that could take and differences and approaches that they may have to explore and weirdness of the situation, all of that is up for grabs. Right, Cobb? I mean, there's just it's impossible to predict. Oh, yeah. I still have no idea what they're going to do. They, they, they kind of had this private eye when they had a bunch of things that they're claiming that they're going to get done. We'll see if it gets done. They told us Tony and Habib was happening, you know, two, three weeks ago. So who the hell knows? Uh, okay, next. Uh, this comes from Thaddeus, who says, Hi, Luke. Uh, thanks for providing the continuous content during these times. Uh, I'm a member of the Navajo Nation living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I am from the Four Corners region. Uh, unfortunately, COVID-19 has spread to the Navajo Nation with 148 positive cases and five deaths as of March 31st, 2020. Uh, within the Navajo culture, speaking of death is taboo, so communicating the worst-case scenarios of COVID-19 is difficult to do in the Navajo language. Uh, wow. Many, many non-English speaker, speaking elders on the Navajo Nation uh, fall into one of the following categories. Number one, total ignorance of COVID-19, as they assume since Native Americans have survived genocide, the introduction of disease when, American was, when America was colonized. 
and the reservation life that they'll be okay and continue on with their daily lives. Two, utilizing traditional healing and consuming a particular animal's meat to protect themselves against COVID-19, as well as social distancing. Uh, fortunately, the Navajo Nation is a sovereign nation and has closed all non-essential businesses and enacted a curfew already to protect its inhabitants. Uh, I wish I could offer more discussing points, discussion points as I'm only scratching the surface on COVID-19 and its impact on my Native American community. But it feels like this is already too long. So my question is, what evidence or arguments would you present a simplified form, in a simplified form to a person who is hard-headed against COVID-19? And if you have any thoughts as an outsider whose opinion I hold in high regard. Bro, I can't even convince insiders. <laughs> You're asking the wrong dude. I will say, though, Cobb, have you been paying attention as information has come out that this uh, disease is affecting populations differently in terms of rate, racial background? Like the numbers out of New York, where the overwhelming amount of deaths from COVID-19, I think, are African-American, even though they're the, uh, in terms of who's affected. Actually, I think they have a higher rate of infection per portion of the population, and I think they lead in terms of categories for death. Latinos might be up there as well, um, but you know, it, it, you know, I hope folks understand it's not because these folks have some kind of genetic difference that makes them predisposed. It's because these are often working class and poor communities, certainly not exclusively, but to, relative to, let's say, white America, they have access to less health care, and um, they have less ability to take off work and work from home which means they're going to get sicker more often and they're going to get less healthcare resources to help them. It's just a reality, man. It's a, it's a sad one, but it's a reality. It, it, again, we had Patrick Wyman on. The, the pandemic comes through and it just kind of hold, holds a mirror up to what's really going on with how strong the institutions might, might – some are strong, some are not. Uh, it's also disparities in healthcare in the country. Some people have great healthcare, some people don't. And people are living in different worlds. So in terms of the Navajo Nation, that's terrible to hear that – not only are they you know, going to be affected and that poverty sort of runs through Native American populations in a very sort of, I mean, regrettable is not really the word, um, kind of way, especially on the, on the plantation. Or not plantations, what am I saying? Reservations, excuse me, on the reservations. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. I would just try to, you know, be as proactive as you can in if not getting them to take every part of it seriously, then certainly, you know, small things like everyone's parents are stubborn. A buddy of mine is paying his parents' credit card bill and he saw on there in California that they had gone to In-N-Out Burger. And they were like, he was like, he was like, dad, why did you go to In-N-Out Burger when you know you're like, you know, blah, 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 blah. This was a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, yeah, I figured it'd be fine and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, they're going to, they're going to listen to an extent just try to get them to listen to the parts that they'll listen to and not waste your time trying to get them to really care about the ins and outs of, of COVID-19. Maybe that's bad advice, but I'm just trying to say, what fights can you win? Try to win those. And you may not win any of those either, but at least focus your attention on the winnable ones. Hey, wear a mask if you go outside. Hey, stay inside to the extent that you can. Hey, you need groceries? I'll get those for you. That kind of a thing. So I set my dad up with, you know, Instacart. My dad's 80, man. He can't be just going out on his own. So I had to do stuff like that for him. And, uh, and I make sure he tips, by the way, 25%, that cheap bastard. So there you go. All right, next. Answer my question! 
Oh, I love that people are starting to use the mailbag to try to troll me now. But you asked for different. Uh, this comes from Ray in Oregon, who says, "I know KOB screens these to well see if this gets if they get through. How many interns has KOB hooked up with?" Zero. Have you seen this? He is a zero. Have you not seen this before? <laughs> who's he gonna hook up? Who's he gonna hook up with? Andre? I was no? say, number one, is... number one, I have scratched and clawed way too hard to get this job to lose it over hooking up with an intern. I know. Over, t- if you lose this job over an HR complaint, that's on uh, you. Yeah, ridiculous. Number two, just you know, putting it out there, our interns are usually male. I think Kelly and there's been one other female intern we've ever had since I've been with the channel. That's not the drawing point. The, the number one point is I'm not losing my job over a damn intern. <laughs> but wow. number two, yeah, they tend to be male anyway. So about looking for the interns. And in general, job security tends to be pretty good at SiriusXM. We should give them some credit, you know. But part of that job security comes with the fact that, hey, don't, you know, don't harass the interns, buddy. Pretty simple. I don't think there's a rule that goes across more businesses <laughs> than don't mess with the interns. I think that's yes, the don't try. Thing ever. Don't right. Here's a here's a here. Uh, uh, what industry do you work in? Janitorial services, radio, law, accounting, police work. Here's a very simple rule. Don't try and bang the interns. It will not go well for you. Just don't do it. Okay? I don't care if they're male or female. Don't do it. Leave them alone. Stick to your business. Uh, go find a slump buster at the bar down the street. You will be okay. All right. Very good. Next. Mail, motherfucker. Uh, this comes from Tony who says, hey, Luke, uh, does weight cutting compromise the immune system in a way that makes fighters more susceptible to infection? That's my understanding. You would need to ask a medical doctor about that. Uh, I don't know exactly what the reality is there. But um, certainly we know that they have cut weight and then they've come down with pneumonia. Cut weight and they've come down with some kind of illness. Cut weight and come down with all different manner of sicknesses in short, quick order. And the belief is that when you drain yourself like that, your body doesn't have the natural immune system to fight things off in a way that it normally would. Now, your immune system can't fight off COVID-19 that quickly anyway. Uh, and if you got it, let's say, cutting weight and had contact with somebody, then then what? That you would still have an incubation period. So it wouldn't affect you like overnight in that way. But um, we're going to see, dude. I mean, th- this is the whole point. It's like, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about the safety protocol the UFC put into place a little bit later. But the reality is it's all a risk. It's all a risk. And they took some real measures, I think, to mitigate that risk, which should be noted, and we will. But this is a, this is a very deadly, transmittable disease. And uh, not going to be easy. Not going to be easy at all. Uh, all right, next. I got mail! Yay! All right. We have a theory here on the crackpots in MMA. This comes from, and he put this in parentheses, Mike, you hung up on me by saying no after I asked to repeat a word because there were other callers and a time was, and time was running out, so I never called again from Connecticut. <laughs> uh, he says, as far as crackpots and other sports, I think they are less accessible and more filtered than MMA guys. You're talking about football, basketball, and baseball. You're basically dealing with the only multimillionaire businessmen athletes who have been trained and contained by agents, coaches, and legal and financial advisors for years as to what as to what to say to come off right, uh, regardless of what they really think. You're not talking with second and third stringers who also make vastly more 
than all but very few, if that MMA guys, and don't give a crap about their agents anyway. Same with boxing. You're not talking to guys who make you know one to twenty grand a fight and work in a warehouse. Fighting is more of a solitary non-team sport with little peer pressure. You are more of a candidate to be an extreme pseudo-libertarian crackpot. Uh, you can say anything with complete immun- with complete impunity, and in other sports, you can basically be substantially fined as an employee of the big, as an employee in the big three sports for saying something management doesn't like. Plus, in MMA, you're dealing with people who want to fight for a living, like boxing. So, what's the takeaway there? Like, it's it's just going to be what it's going to be. I think he's giving up. Yeah, this is just his theory on why there's so many more crackpots in this sport than compared to the other, you know, major sports. Yeah, I mean, partly it's got to be self-selection. That's one part, right? People who want to do this are probably going to be a little bit different than you or me. Two, there's no real top-down pressure putting a lid on that kind of a thing. Three, I'd also add this in. Head trauma, dude. Are you really going to say that head trauma plays no role in this conspiratorial worldview? I find that a little bit hard to believe, to be honest with you. Uh, how, how much of a role? I don't know. Hopefully not a major one, but like, can we completely divorce that from the equation? I don't think so. All right, we got time for maybe one or two more quick ones? Uh, sure. Uh, this comes from Bo. Who can says, you make sure you start every sentence with the word, uh, it only sounds great. I will make that my business. Uh, All right, King uh, Banter. <laughs> this comes from Bo, who says, uh, I enjoy the conversation with Patrick Wyman. Great discussion to have now, and I'm going to subscribe to his podcast as a result. Uh, I'm going to disagree on simulated sports and point to what I thought was a funny juxtaposition. You talked about how silly it was to watch simulated Wizards games, which are actually more detailed than you mentioned. NBC Sports Washington is showing simulated Wizards Capitals games with their actual commentators. Then you immediately mentioned a fight movie bracket. <laughs> it, 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 it is a bracket in which you vote on things any less silly than watching a simulated basketball game, NASCAR, or curling game. Uh, and in personal news, I'm finally at a super-duper self-isolation, and I am allowed to stay upstairs in the house now, 14 days since the onset symptoms, and I'm feeling pretty good. Bro, they're not putting our bracket challenge on local TV. I mean, the silliness comes from the reasons he's talking about. They're getting the commentators, Joe Beninati, here in D.C., the Caps commentator, play-by-play, to come and talk about this stuff. Yeah, of course it's different. You've got something objectively silly, which by itself is no, no big problem, and then you're trying to put some, like, professional shine on it. And I'm, I'm not mad at that either. I guess some people like that. I just think it's dumb. Our bracket challenge is also dumb. But it's just us doing it on my stupid radio show. Like, you know, it, it very tucked away. I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a comparison there at all. These people are amazing. You want one more? Amazing, Co. Yeah, I'll do one more quick one. Answer my question! All right, here we go. This comes from Jack, who says, Hey, Luke, you're the number one contender. How are you handling the press conference? Are you talking crap, knowing numbers of royalty in this business? And if you win, you could be a star? Or are you going to be doing the focusing on the fight bit or a combo of the two? How are you handling the situation? Wait, one more time. Okay, so in this uh, situation he's putting together, you're a fighter, okay? okay? Right, you're the number right. one contender. How are you handling your press conference? Are you talking crap knowing numbers or royalty in the business? And if you win, you could be a star. Or are you doing the whole I'm just focusing on the fight bit or a combo of no. the two? Doing the Diaz bit. I'm not even showing up. 
S a D not even showing up. Pull me from the card. I dare you. And then here's what I'll do. I'll go and talk to, uh, what you call it? I'll talk to, uh, media. Like I'll do a bunch of media, like, you know, radio interviews and stuff like that. And just skipping the old presser. Lick my bees. How about that? That's my answer. I haven't showered in four days. Suck it. That's my answer. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.